Hey everyone, welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and in today's episode, we're heading to colorful Colorado to discuss two cold cases that are still currently unsolved. Really quickly, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has supported the show on Patreon. There is a ton of new content dropping on there as we speak, so if you haven't already, head on over there to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to check it out. Up first on today's Cold Case Corner, we are heading back to Denver, Colorado in July of 1991. A 10-year-old boy named Jacob McKnight lived in Lakewood, Colorado with his parents and his older brother Josh, who was 12. It was summertime and he was going into the fifth grade at Bear Creek Elementary School. Jacob was super friendly. He had never met a stranger. He was a typical young boy. He loved swimming and fishing and hanging out in the green belt nearby their house. And according to their parents, they weren't allowed to hang out in the green belt without a parent supervising them. So the green belt is located off of South Wadsworth in Lakewood, Colorado. All of my local friends will know exactly where this area is. It was a hot spot for young kids, teens, and even adults to hang out in the summer and swim. There were swimming holes, areas to fish, etc. And kids spent a lot of time outside during the summer, and specifically at the Greenbelt. Well, this July was no different. The McKnight brothers, Jacob and Josh, spent a lot of time at the Greenbelt as well. It was about a mile from their home, and they just loved to be outside. So on July 20th, 1991, Josh and a few of his friends were at the swimming hole nearby when a man showed up and began to hang out with Josh and his friends. The man had long, dark hair down to his waist. He was in his 20s, and when he left the swimming hole, he asked them to return the next day to hang out. So they were like, yeah, cool, let's hang out with this older guy, whatever. So then, July 21st, 1991, unbeknownst to their parents, Josh and two of his, two of his friends returned to the Greenbelt, and Jacob walks to meet them there as well. And once again, the man from the day before was there, too. But this time, he had a few friends with him as well. So there were also other neighbor kids at the Greenbelt that day, including a girl named Rachel who was interviewed in a Denver 7 News article about the case that I will link to in the show notes. Rachel remembers noticing the man, who was twice their age, taking a particular interest in Jacob. He called him, quote, angel eyes, and said he had the most beautiful blue eyes that he had ever seen. He also mentioned that he wanted to meet up with Jacob a few days later to take pictures of his eyes to use in a photo album. So Rachel remembers that the man hung out with Jacob, Josh, and their friends for about 30 to 45 minutes before returning to his group of adult friends and then leaving around 4.30. No one knew who these people were or who this man was, but it was enough to stick in the minds of the kids who were there that day. So the kids hung out at the Green Belt for the remainder of the evening, and they headed home around 8.30 p.m. It was getting dark, and the streetlights were going to come on. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you get it. It's time to go home. So Josh and his friends rode ahead of Jacob, 
who was walking home alone, this poor little baby muffin. So on his way home, Jacob was seen stopping into a 7-Eleven store, but he wasn't alone at the time. A female clerk would later recall that Jacob was with a man who had waist-length dark hair and several earrings on his right ear. The two reportedly left the 7-Eleven together. No one would recall seeing Jacob alive after this point, and he would never make it home. When Josh returned home without his brother, their father went out looking for Jacob. He searched all over. He searched the Greenbelt and surrounding neighborhoods, but it was dark by that point, and he couldn't find his son, so he called the authorities. Nearly two dozen officers and police dogs searched through the night for the boy without luck. The search continued the next day amid heavy rain, and during the rainstorm, around 4 o'clock p.m., a member of the Arapahoe County search party found Jacob's body, partially covered by leaves under a huge tree trunk not far from the swimming hole. Jacob had been stabbed 24 times. This poor baby. Ugh. Because of the rain, DNA, fingerprints, and any other forensic evidence that might have been able to be taken was likely washed away, which would cause trouble for investigators. Pretty quickly, the news found out about Jacob's body being found and broadcasted on the local news, which is how his parents found out that he had been found. Ugh. Police began to talk with Josh and his two friends who had been there that day, and they all told police about the man with long hair who had been at the Greenbelt two days in a row. Police spoke to the clerk at the 7-Eleven, and she too described the man with long hair and several earrings in his right ear. So with this description, police created a composite sketch and distributed it across Denver on posters and newspapers and on the TV. The sketch showed a skinny white man with long hair and bad skin. So police were looking at the sketch, and they were like, huh, that guy kind of looks like a man who bonded out of jail just a few days prior to Jacob's murder. It was a man named John Chin, and he was accused of allegedly sexually assaulting the nine-year-old brother of an acquaintance. After doing some digging, police realized that his past went deeper than that. He was convicted of felony drug possession in September of 1989 and had spent time in a mental health treatment facility in early 1991 before his arrest. So John, John Chin quickly became a suspect in Jacob's murder, along with another man who had been there with John that day. So officers brought John in to be interviewed on July 23rd, and he quickly admitted to seeing and talking to Jacob that day. He was cooperating with police. He gave a DNA sample and allowed them to take pictures of his body. He admitted to asking Jacob to meet up with him a few days later to take pictures of his eyes, but he claims he was never at the 7-Eleven with Jacob and that he had nothing to do with his murder. He claimed that he left the park area around 4.30 p.m. with his friends and his alibi which was verified by his friends, was that they were eating dinner and hanging out until around 10.30 p.m. Now, a term of John's release from prison after the molestation charges was that he couldn't be around children. 
So his bond was revoked, and on July 25th, 1991, he was arrested and jailed for bond violation. So the man who John Chin was with that day was a man named Tom Judge. He became a suspect as well, but had a similar story to John and claimed that nothing nefarious was going on. Police interviewed Tom and John's friends who verified their stories and alibis. Police searched for evidence, DNA, something, but they only came up with a small amount of DNA and none that would indicate the killer, according to Lakewood Detective Sergeant Don Gerson. Judge and Chin remained fairly uncooperative with further investigation and grand jury efforts, the detective said. In August of 1991, Chin posted a $50,000 bond and was released, according to court records. In December, a judge dismissed the child sex assault charge against him when the victim's mother said she didn't want to put her child through testifying at the trial. At the trial. A few days after the charge was dismissed, Jacob's father and uncle went to the green belt and burned down the stump under which his body had been found. But the police and district attorney refused to pursue charges against the grieving family. At the same time, however, they hadn't been able to secure any charges on Chin or anyone else either. And from there, the case went cold. The police didn't have anything for several years, several decades. But then, John Chin came under suspicion as as authorities investigated him in an undercover oxycodone distribution case in 2009 and 2010. He was convicted in the drug case, while a a child sexual exploitation case also went forward. So this guy sucked. On February 9, 2010, a South Metro Drug Task Force agent issued a search warrant for Chin's home and confiscated a computer, 118 CDs, a bunch of USB devices with 7 gigabytes of memory, 148 floppy disks, 17 zip drives, cell phones, and various journals. Authorities determined that the material included 38 photographs and eight videotapes containing child sexual abuse material. But Chen was able to plead down to the two felony sex charges to one misdemeanor count of sexual contact without consent. Paired with his drug conviction, he was sentenced in February of 2015 to five years of probation. But eight months later, Littleton police arrested Chen again on another felony count of sex- sexual exploitation of a child and he pled, pleaded guilty in April of 2016 to the same charge and was sentenced to four years in prison. He remains a person of interest in the murder of Jacob McKnight. There's a bench nearby a pond labeled Jacob's Pond as a memorial, but as of 2023, the case remains unsolved. In 2019, the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers announced that an anonymous donor added money to bring the reward fund up to $5,000. Anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 720-913-7867 or the Lakewood Police Department. Callers can remain anonymous and could be eligible for a reward of up to $5,000 in this case. The tip line is answered 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.
Up next, we're heading a little farther back to October of 1980, when a 15-year-old girl named Stephanie Ann Bowman was found murdered in a ditch off County Road 173 near U.S. 36 in Arapahoe County. But who would want to hurt Stephanie, and why? A lot of the information that I got came from a Denver Post article that was written in September of 2010 about the case. According to Stephanie's father, Robert Bowman, Stephanie had a hard time growing up. Her parents divorced when she was young, and she alternated between living with her mother in St. Louis and living with her father in Littleton, Colorado. Her dad did the best he could to provide for Stephanie and her two siblings, but Stephanie really struggled as a teenager. She ran away from home a few times, and her father was concerned that she was on drugs. Finally, Robert placed his daughter into a home for troubled teens. There was also another report that I read that said Stephanie put herself into the home for troubled teens. So I wish I had some confirmation on that. But either way, it didn't take long for Stephanie to grow tired of the strict rules in the home, and she eventually ran away with another girl. For the next two weeks, Stephanie was couch surfing with friends. She wouldn't stay very long with each friend because she didn't want to be a burden for anyone. She was trying to reconnect with family and go back home, but she would never make it. On the morning of October 28, 1980, a motorist on County Road 173 near Highway 36 was driving along when he had to do a double take. What he saw when he turned around horrified him. It was the nude and bruised body of a young girl laying in the ditch. It was the body of Stephanie Bowman, and she had collapsed in the ditch and had died from hypothermia. But how did she get there? And what led up to this horrific tragedy? According to information provided by a former sheriff's sergeant named Ron Martin to former Denver Post reporter Dana Parsons, this is what we know of the timeline of events from that night. According to Martin's account from the Denver Post article, quote, the girl's nightmare began near a rickety windmill and water trough filled with frozen water just off County Road 161. Investigators found a pile of girls' clothes along with a man's camel-colored, camel-colored size 42 coat. There were blue jeans, a light blue sweater, running shoes, one white sock with green and yellow striping, and women's underwear. From there, the girl walked briskly or ran down a dirt path to County Road 161. She walked on the left side of the road, which had a, a shallow ditch beside it. And it was estimated that this was around 4 o'clock a.m. She headed south at one point. Footprints indicated she walked down into the ditch, then back out, slipping in the dirt as she did. At another point, she apparently walked into the middle of the dirt road. Along the way, she should have been able to see the lights from at least three farmhouses that were less than, less than a mile away. So why didn't she seek refuge? If someone was with her, did the person or persons prevent her? Or did she want to stay on the road, perhaps knowing where she was going? At no point along her four-mile route did investigators find any footprints other than those of the woman. She walked along 161 for about three-tenths of a mile when she came to its intersection with Colorado 30, which is the extension of Quincy Avenue. 
she followed that highway for about 2.8 miles when it ended and turned into County Road 173. But along Colorado 30, something telling might have happened. At one point, car tire tracks made it clear that a car drove partway into the ditch, then back out again. At the same point, footprints indicate the woman was standing with her back practically up against a wire fence, about 20 feet off the road, clearly suggesting she was getting out of the way of the car. So this raises more questions. Was the car driven by someone who was harassing the woman, or was it a passing motorist who lost control temporarily? If so, and assuming, assuming the driver saw the woman, why wasn't help summoned? So from then on, investigators can't identify any more tire tracks along the route the woman walked. That doesn't prove the car didn't continue following her, Martin said, if that's what it had been doing. It simply is a matter of the physical evidence disappearing there. So Martin also reasons, quote, if the car did abandon her, why wouldn't she retrace her steps and go back after her clothing? Why keep walking in the dark night at a time when she must have been freezing. In any event, the woman continued walking. She reached the end of Colorado 30 and turned north. And this was about to be the final mile of her life. She walked about a half mile where her footprints indicate she was walking in the middle of the road. She stayed there until she collapsed a few hundred yards further on. Indications are that she fell off to the side of the road, rolled over into the shallow ditch, and died. Martin estimates that she died around 6 o'clock a.m., based mainly on the fact that the road becomes more heavily traveled about 6.30 a.m., and had she still been walking, he thinks that someone would have seen her, end quote. Later on, Robert Bowman was the one to identify his daughter's body. There was DNA taken from Stephanie's body, and from the scene, but that was it in terms of the physical evidence aside from the tire tracks. Two witnesses would tell police that early in the morning on October 28th, they saw a late model silver Lincoln sedan with four women inside. And this is a weird sight on dirt on a dirt road about five miles south of Byers at that time in the morning. Several hours later, one of the same witnesses saw the silver Lincoln but this time there were only three women inside the car, and they appeared to be upset. Aside from this, though, the police didn't really have anything to go off of, and the case eventually went cold. There were theories that her death was possibly connected to a serial killer who would have been active at that time, but despite having DNA evidence in the case, 43 years later, no suspects have ever been connected to the case. If you have any information regarding the death of Stephanie Bowman, you're encouraged to contact the Rappahoe County Sheriff's Office at 303-795-4711 or email coldcase at arapahogov.com. And that is the cold case of Stephanie Bowman and also the cold case of Jacob McKnight. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll be covering cold cases in a different state once per month in hopes of getting the word out there, and hopefully someone will know something. If you have any information about the deaths of Jacob McKnight and Stephanie Bowman, please reach out. No information is ever too small.
The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner, available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to episodes, plus so much more. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.